Amen. It's so good to see everyone back. What a wonderful turnout this morning. Lovely to see you all. Many faces that you've waited until alert level one to join us. We're thrilled that we're all together. Um, good morning indeed. Good morning, church. The church has gathered physically uh, as one, and so how exciting that is. The last time we were together as one, as a church, was all the way back in the middle of March, so a quarter of this year uh, apart, collectively. And so today we rejoice to be able to be back together here, undivided, uh, unrestricted, and looking forward to a wonderful time uh, of fellowship afterwards. I was out the back earlier, there is plenty of food And so if you're visiting with us this morning or you didn't manage to bring a plate of food, please stick around. There is plenty of food. There'll be plenty to catch up on, I'm sure. And so we look forward to that. In light of this morning, I want us to spend some time uh, revisiting much of what we already know, yet allowing by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, allowing the truth of it to deeply penetrate our hearts and minds at this time. You know, we are a people most blessed. I think we understand that, but we really are a people most blessed. We face trial and heartache and difficulty like the rest of the world, but we are a people most blessed. And there is really an expulsive power of joy that comes about as we, those who are so undeserving, are reminded once again of just how blessed we are. You know, it was William Wilberforce who said this, quote, True Christians consider themselves not as those satisfying some rigorous creditor, but as discharging a debt of gratitude. I think that's what marks the believer. We do not live for God as though God is seeking repayment from us, having done so much for us, where we are then compelled to meet the obligation under some sort of burdened exertion. No, we, the people of God, the church, we live our lives for God with deep abiding joy in light of what God has done for us and for us as those eager to be discharging in our life and in our ministry an immense debt of gratitude, gratitude. In fact, one of the hallmark chief marks of any believer ought to be a deep abiding joy that is fueled by gratitude, gratitude. But if you're like me, and I know you are like me, we're often prone to forgetting the loving kindness of our God. We're just prone at times. We become like those to whom Paul wrote in Rome when he questioned them in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 when he said, do you think lightly, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness toward you? Do you think lightly? To think lightly is not, is to really not think at all, right? And we can be given to such a thing when it comes to all that God has done for us. And if that is the case for some believers, then it is the case for the church. For the church is the collection of saints 
here on earth. And so let's spend some time being reacquainted with some blessed realities that are ours as the church of the one true and living God. So that gratitude may flood and fill our hearts afresh. In order that we might live with a deep, quantifiable, observable joy and gratitude. This morning I have three headings for us. Number one, the day that was. Number two, the day that is. And number three, the day that will be. But before we dive into each of those, considering the theme this morning, it would be good for us to have a biblical working definition of what the church is. Simply put, the church is the collective assembly of all true believers who have been redeemed through the person and work of Jesus Christ, both in his living and in his dying on the believer's behalf. And the church is only in existence for a very distinct window of time. A little bit more on that later. When we think of the church, we need to think of it also as that which is invisible and that which is visible. The visible church is what we see. Before me here is the visible church. As you look around this auditorium is the visible church. That is a universal church that meets all over the globe, which we see with our eyes. The invisible church is what God sees. Only God can see the heart of a person. Only God knows whether a person is truly part of the church. We cannot see the spiritual condition. We can see evidences of regeneration, but only God ultimately knows. To that end, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2.19, The Lord knows those who are His. And so the church ultimately is invisible, and yet it is also visible. We must also consider the church as both universal and local. The church is universal in that there is one true church made up of those truly regenerate all over the globe. The true church is not divided. There is no division in the true church of God. The church is one. It is universal. And as that one universal church gathers corporately around the world, it does so in local contexts, right? God in his sovereign care, in his very kind providence, provides believers with local church assemblies such as this one, in which they can live their lives immersed in the very context of its life and of its ministry. That's what God intends for every believer. Not peripheral living, but immersed in the context of a local church. Each true local church is ordained of God to provide the full and comprehensive scope of the exclusive and ordinary means of grace to the believer. That simply refers to the means that God has provided to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our journey, to aid us as our pilgrimage, pilgrimage journey continues. In the church is every means of grace from God 
afforded to us. For example, prayer, preaching, and the sacraments. That is, baptism and the Lord's table. They may not appear outwardly to the passerby or the nominal Christian as they are quite ordinary means. They're not flashy or amazing in appearance, but through the power by faith of the working of the Holy Spirit, rather through faith and the working of the Spirit, they are the very means by which God sanctifies and strengthens our life. Without them, we perish. And I think we need to be reminded of that. Without them, we perish. They are afforded to us by God that he might receive all the praise and all the glory. Furthermore, the New Testament offers up several metaphors. You've read these several metaphors to aid us in understanding the nature of the church. I want us to just very quickly glance at a couple. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 5 for a moment. 1 Timothy 5. Let me add, it is so wonderful to be able to look all the way back and see so many faces here this morning. It's so great to see you. 1 Timothy 5. Writing in the context about the church. Look at what Paul says, beginning in verse 1. 1 Timothy 5. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Paul is showing us there, by writing in such a way, that the church is a family. The church is a family. Fathers, brothers, mothers, sisters. All as one family. And as one family, we all have the one heavenly father. We're no longer children of this world. We've been adopted in under the one heavenly father, into the one heavenly family. We have zero communion with those not in the family. Yes, we are to shine as lights to the world, function as salt in this world, but we have zero fellowship with the sons and daughters of this world. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and I'll show you a little bit more on that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. That is a command to the church. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living of God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. Look at verse 18. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 
as a family, we have the deepest, richest, closest relationships with each other. No one, and I really mean that, no one is closer to you than a true brother and a true sister in Christ. And by God's grace, He places you in a local assembly with the very closest of all your brothers and sisters in Christ. Another metaphor is that of a house. Hebrews chapter 3. Let me read it for you. You don't have to turn there. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6 says, very simply, and we are His house. Verse 3 calls Christ the builder of the house. We labor in vain, don't we, unless Christ builds the church. And Christ builds the church not through the latest trend, not through the latest fad, not through bowing to culture's latest outrage, but through his faithfulness, but through faithfulness rather to his word. No matter what. That's how Christ, the builder, builds his house. There's other metaphors, you know those, the body, the bride, the branches, the temple and so on. But what is important to grasp is that these metaphors are given to us in Scripture so that we would always appreciate the church, that we would always have a high view of the church. For in the church is the fueling of gratitude. And in gratitude is the ignition key to live for God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31, which are words of exhortation to the church, say, Whether then you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. God peppers His word to us, the church, with metaphors about the church, literally all over the place, because he knows our frame. He knows how forgetful and prone to wander we can be. He knows that we can get so caught up in ourselves, we can begin to lose appreciation for the church and fail to grasp its immensity and the purpose God has for it in our lives. And I would add the lives of our children and the lives of our children's children. Wayne Grudem brought this out so well when he said, quote, The fact that the church is like a family should increase our love and fellowship with one another. The thought that the church is like the bride of Christ should stimulate us to strive for greater purity and holiness and also greater love for Christ and submission to Him. The image of the church as branches in a vine should cause us to rest in Him more fully. The picture of the church as God's temple should increase our awareness of God's very presence dwelling in our midst as we meet together. The concept of the church as a priesthood of all believers should help us to see more clearly the delight that God has in our sacrifices and good deeds we offer to Him. End quote. To be part of the church is to be part of the most blessed family, the most blessed institution, the most blessed living organism the world has or will ever have. It truly is. And you know, the church has not always been in the world and the church won't always be in the world. The church really is something, as I said before, that is here during just a very unique dispensation of time. It's a privilege to be a part of the church, let me tell you that much. 
The church is really something. It was birthed on the day of Pentecost. And it will be gone on the day of the rapture. It came into existence at Pentecost as part of God's plan of redemption. As that plan continued to unfold with sequential acts of redemption. What I mean by that is this. First, man was given Old Testament revelation. Mankind. God spoke to Israel through the prophets. They spoke of salvation and redemption. Then after that Old Testament revelation, there was then the arrival of God in human flesh. The incarnate Son. The Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the world. He lived a life we could not live. Obedient to the righteous requirements of the law that you and I could never fulfill. Then at about age 33, that God-man, the Lord Jesus, he died a penal substitutionary death. A death that appeased the wrath of God and then ushered in the new covenant. Ratified by the shedding of his blood. Then... Just three days later, the next thread in redemptive history took place when Jesus rose from the grave. Overcoming the penalty and the power of death, leaving it in the grave. And then 40 or so days after that, another necessary part of the redemptive sequence took place when the Son ascended back to the Father. Sat down. Having accomplished the work of redemption. And then after all that, the next phase in God's plan of redemption is rolled out, the sending of the Holy Spirit promised by the Son. Acts 2 tells us all about that. The Spirit falls upon the disciples. They receive power to be what? To be witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and then to the outer parts of the earth. And on that day at Pentecost, The church was birthed into existence with thousands being saved and immersed into the church by faith. And the church has continued on since that day all through the ages as the pillar and the support of the truth. The truth. And God is building his house all over the world. With Christ as the builder of that house. Who said himself, did he not? In Matthew chapter 16 verse 18. I will build my church. The church is Jesus' church. He is the Lord of the church. He promises to always provide for it. And to always protect it. Ephesians 5.29 says. Acts 20.28 says. That the church was purchased with his blood. And because of that. Because the church was purchased with his blood. The believer then has, as his or her creed, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. I will glorify the one who died for me. Not out of burden, but out of gratitude. The earliest confession of the church was simply, Jesus is Lord. The true church has one message and will always have one message, which is that there is salvation in no one else than the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no other name given under heaven that has been given among men by which they must be saved. Acts 4.12. And the reason the church, a collective family of redeemed individuals, 
stands upon and proclaims such an exclusive otherworldly message is because something very drastic and dramatic occurred in the very soul, the mind, the affections and the will of each person in the church. And that introduces us to the first of three headings this morning. I hope we'll get through it. And, the, and I hope these headings are aided by the Spirit of God through the Word of God to maintain, even increase our gratitude. I want us to consider first, number one, the day that was. And turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. The day that was, if you're taking notes. Any study in Ephesians would not be right without leaning on the exegetical work of Harold Honer, which I've done once again here. Paul has begun this letter in chapter 1 with the greatest of all eulogies in chapter 1, a Trinitarian praise. Blessed Father who has chosen us for adoption as children. Blessed Son who has redeemed us. Blessed Spirit who sealed us and secured us all in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he begins to talk about the day that was, the day that was for all of us here that are in Christ this morning. For some of you here this morning, this is still your day. You are not born again. You haven't been born from above, born by the Spirit of God. You haven't humbled yourself and trusted in the Lord Jesus and received all the spiritual blessings that are ours as the church of the Lord Jesus. And you need to do that today. May today, the day when Riverbend Bible Church, after three months, a quarter of a year of not being able to gather, may this day, on this very special day, be the day that is very special to you because you finally trust unto salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that today. For the believer, what we're about to look at, this is the day that was. Look at verse 1 of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I mean, such a familiar verse. In verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul is describing here our former condition. We were lost. We weren't just sick. We were spiritually dead, unable to respond to divine stimuli. We needed a life source from outside of ourselves injected into our spiritually dead soul so that we might live for God. And you know what? Verse 4 tells us that that's what happened. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We, we rightly so marvel at that. We rightly so rejoice in that. We rightly so must be humbled by that. Such amazing grace. And then, yet what Paul does next is crucial to grasp. Because what he does is he shows us that salvation is not solely individualistic. Solely not individualistic. And that's where verses 11 through 22 come into place. Verse Chapter 2 begins with verse 1, some very bad news. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 4, some very good news. Christ made you alive. 
But then in verses 11 through 12, uh, 22, he shows us that he didn't just make you alive for you to just live an individual life. There is more to salvation than just that. Verses 11 through 22 show us that this new position that is ours is not an individual but corporate position. We were saved to enter into a corporate position. We're not one in the individual sense. We are one in the corporate sense. And in verses 11 and 12, Paul is showing us our past exclusion from fellowship where we were alienated from the chosen people of God and all the blessings that were theirs as the chosen people of God. Verse 11. Therefore, there it is, remember. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from the Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. You see, you have this chosen people of God, the nation of Israel, and the Gentiles, which refers to every other ethnicity in the world. Whenever you read the word Gentile, don't just think Roman or Greek. It's every ethnicity in the entire world. There were... By God's choice, there were a people who were under all the immense blessings and promises of what is called the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. They were promised the land by God. They were promised the Messiah who would come through the seed of David. They were promised every blessing of God. And then there was the Gentiles. And there was this gigantic gulf between the two ethnicities. And Paul is saying here that the Jews looked at the other ethnicities as those who did not have the covenant seal upon them, namely circumcision. And the Jews considered the Gentiles subpar, inferior. And in many ways, it was true. The Jews had it all. All other ethnicities had nothing. And so the Jews even used the derogatory term there to belittle them, uncircumcision. I do like how Paul then mocks the Jews and calls them the so-called circumcision. But to the Jew... The other ethnicities were in the flesh, it says there. In the flesh because they did not have the seal of the covenant. Circumcision. Physically. But more than physical and even societal, more than that issue of separation, there was more importantly a spiritual issue of separation between the ethnicities. The Jews had received from God, as I said, special privileges 
that had not been given to the other ethnicities. In fact, verse 12 alone, in verse 12 alone, Paul highlights five things the Jews had that other ethnicities did not. All the other nations, there was no Messiah. Look at verse 12. You're excluded. They had a promised Messiah as a Jewish ethnicity. You had no promise. The Old Testament is replete with national promises to the Israelites. So number one, the first of five, the Messiah. Number two, all other ethnicities were alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel. You see that there? Excluded from the Commonwealth of Israel. God had chosen Israel to be his special people. God had not chosen any other ethnicity, any other people to be his people. He established himself as Israel's king. Israel lived under his rule. They functioned in a theocracy. And all other peoples were excluded. There were privileges that were Israel's. There were not privileges of any other ethnic group. Number three, all other ethnicities were strangers, foreigners, aliens to the covenants of promise. That's the next one. It says it there, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Prior to conversion, you and I, like all non-Jewish ethnicities, had zero participation in the covenants. The covenants that God made with Israel. I want you to note that Paul makes mention of covenants plural. That is incredibly significant. Our reformed brothers and sisters whom we love, they like to think of there being one covenant of grace that runs through all this and is just republished throughout the ages. But it's clear here that Paul has in mind covenants, plural, which are covenants, it says there in verse 12, of promise, of promise. The Abrahamic covenant, along with the Davidic covenant, is what is being spoken of here. All through Genesis, God spoke, said to Abraham, didn't he? Things like this, I'll make you a great nation. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Both the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants are what is called unconditional. They are unconditional, making them therefore promises, covenants of promise. They are land, seed, offspring meaning, and blessing covenants. Abraham... The Abrahamic covenant was the land. Davidic covenant was the seed. For from the seed of David would come the Messiah. All promises. Covenants, plural, of promise. Two, all ethnicities outside of Israel, there was no such promise. Which means, logically concluding... It says there, number four, there's no hope. No hope. Look at the end of, well, the, kind of the end of verse 12. Having no hope. How could there be hope? There was no Messiah promised. There was no commonwealth or citizenship to share in. No covenant promises and blessings to hold on to for the future. Only the Jew could really say with the psalmist, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. Whose hope is in Yahweh. 
Psalm 146. Only the Jew had something to look forward to and to hope for. For all other ethnicities, there was no awareness of any of the blessings, for none were given. They were hopeless. And then the fifth and final thing there, obvious one, all ethnicities were without God. It says there, without God. Having no hope and without God in the world. They were without the one true and living God, is what Paul's saying here. Sure, the many ethnicities the world over have worshipped many a false god. But what Paul is saying here is that they were without the one true living God. Prior to being made part of the church through faith in Christ, which is all a work of God's grace in our life, this was our day. This was our day. The day that was. And Paul is asking the church here at Ephesus to do something. Look, at, look back at the very beginning of verse 11. He's asking them to therefore remember. He's saying, church, remember that formerly you, dear non-Jewish person, you were alienated from Christ and excluded from fellowship. Your sin separated you from a holy God and there were five distinct privileges that were not yours. You were hopeless and without the one true God. And you know what? God is saying that to us this morning. Therefore, remember Riverbend Bible Church. Each and every one of us as individuals who make this our spiritual home, remember that you were dead in your sins, your sins separated you from God, and there were privileges not afforded you that were afforded to the Jewish nation who were God's chosen people. My brothers and sisters whom I love, God by the Spirit, Inspired the author. And God, by that spirit-inspired author, is wanting you and I, the church, to remember our pre-conversion days. Not simply from an individual standpoint, but from a collective standpoint. That we were excluded from the fellowship and blessing with others and from God. To see that we were each, as a collective of ethnicities, strangers to all of God's promises. And then having remembered to then consider just how hopeless and lost we were. And how dire our predicament was. In that day that was. That it might make the day that is... Even sweeter. Even sweeter. For as we remember just how hopeless and lost we truly were, and how excluded and alienated from God and His Messiah and the promises we were, it will make the grace that we sing of and speak of all the more profound. Amazing grace. And so we've looked at, number one, the day that was. 
The second point now, heading of consideration, so as to maintain, even increase our gratitude, is number two, the day that is. It's a beautiful day to be in the Lord Jesus. And to think back upon how vile and lost and hopeless we were. Look at verse 13. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. The blood of Christ. But now, not not the day that was, but the day that is. We who were formerly far off have been brought near. Paul has now moved from highlighting our prior lack of union and fellowship to now in verse 13 highlighting the fact that through Christ we have been encompassed in fellowship. That we now have union through Christ and in Christ. These words here in verse 13 certainly are making a reference to the temple. Shedding of blood, drawing near. The temple had many a court area in it, right? With the holy of holies, the most sacred place. But there was many a court area. You had the holy of holies and then you had all the outer courts. And what was the most outer court? Found way out the back, (laughs) on the back seat of the bus, it was the court of the Gentiles. That ethnicity, they're out there. And so Paul is saying that through the shedding of Christ's blood, even non-Jewish ethnicities have entered into the Holy of Holies through Christ. Why? Christ's blood was shed, the veil was torn, access granted to The world, all the ethnicities of the world now have access to the most holy of holies. I want you to note that Paul is not saying that our coming near to God, sorry, that in our coming near to God, we become Jewish. Sadly, some people get confused about that. We don't become Jewish in order to come close to God. We've not turned into Jews and then made close to God. Yes, the Jews were made, the Jews were near to God because they were his chosen ethnicity. They had all his blessings, but we don't draw near to God by becoming Jews. We, those from other ethnicities, we've been brought near to God, not to a dead Judaism that died that day that Christ hung upon that cross. The moment the new covenant was inaugurated, Judaism died. We've been brought near to God through Christ, specifically through his shed blood. For it was the shedding of the Messiah's blood that the new covenant was inaugurated. We see here that it is through the cross that true reconciliation takes place. Verse 13 shows us 
that reconciliation with God takes place. I want you to see what verse 14 does, because verse 14 now shows us that reconciliation between peoples occurs. And I want you to understand that we're not talking about races here. We're not talking about races. We're talking about ethnicities. There is only one race. The race of Adam. Abraham, the first ever Jew, he did not become a different race as though his molecular structure changed internally. Instead, God altered him externally by the sign of circumcision, which gave birth to the ethnicity of the Jew. We're all of Adam. The idea of different races is altogether unbiblical. We are the Adamic race. We've so believed the sociological lie that there are many races. When in fact, it is not that there are many races, it is that there are many ethnicities of the one race. The reason you get ethnicities of the one race is because you have various cultures and contexts, various people groups living out their own cultural traditions and practices in their own locations. There is one race. And so the distinction between Jew and Gentile is not one of race. It's one of covenant. Underline that. The Jew and Gentile distinction is not one of race. It is one of covenant. Covenant. That's important to comprehend. God made a covenant with the Jews and all other ethnicities were excluded from fellowship with God and from fellowship with them. But through the cross and the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, all is reconciled to God. We are reconciled to God and the cross reconciles ethnicities to each other. The church is so much more than just sins forgiven. It is the removal, not just the narrowing of a gap, but it is the complete removal of any divide between people and God and people and people. That is why it says there in verse 14, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Peace with God. Peace with others. But look at verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So that, he, so that in himself we might make the two into one new man. Thus establishing Peace. This is not just about reconciling us to God. This is not just about reconciling us to others. The cross is about making one new humanity. Not two. Not two groups who are reconciled. But one new humanity. There was hostility between the two ethnic groups. 
In fact, inside the temple, there was a sign between that court of the Gentiles, which was way out the back, and the Jewish courts, between the two, there was a sign that said this, quote, No Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary. Any Gentile who is caught doing so will have only himself to blame for his ensuing death. Enmity in an ordinance. That barrier that existed, that law that existed between the two ethnic groups only brought about hostility between the two. It only illustrates the divide that existed between the two. But through Jesus Christ and His atoning sacrifice, He abolished every barrier between God and people and between people and people. Not just reconciling two groups, but obliterating even the concept of two groups by making one new humanity. End of verse 15. And thus establishing peace. Verse 16. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by, having, by it having put to death the enmity. Verse 17 is remarkable. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. The Lord Jesus, by his death on the cross, was preaching peace to all, regardless of ethnicity. Verse 18, for through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. That is a remarkable verse. That verse there tells us that we are then made participants, we are then grafted in to all the promises that were the chosen people of God. We live in a world, don't we, that knows no peace. I think we see that they only know divide. And in their so-called wisdom, their very ideas for peace only cause more divide. The church of Jesus Christ is the pillar and support of the truth which preaches the true means of peace. Peace between God and peace between fellow mankind. Prior to Christ, you and I, we possessed no peace. No peace with God or another. There was only enmity. Between Jew and Gentile from the stringent keeping of the law which gave the Jews a superiority complex. And caused the Gentiles to be resentful. You may not enter here and if you enter here it will be your ensuing death. There was only alienation, only exclusion, and no hope. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, and by grace alone, you have been saved. 
Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. All glory to God. That does not say for he and my contribution of anything is our peace. No, all glory and praise to the Lord Jesus. He himself is our peace. He abolished the hostility brought about by the laws and ordinances. That is the cry of the church. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. All people groups, all ethnicities, are one inside God's house. If look ahead and look at chapter 3. Look at verse 14. Paul, in light of all this truth, seeing no longer there being an ethnic divide, but through the cross all are made one, Paul then just says this, for this reason I bow my knees. I bow my knees before the Father. Look at verse 15. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints the one new humanity, the church. That you may be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now look at this, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. I find it truly remarkable, I really do. I find it truly remarkable, though not in any way surprising, for God's word is true and it is sufficient to navigate through the craziest of waters. Particularly when a world is now just eating itself from the inside. I find it no surprise that an epistle written about the church, giving instruction to how the church ought to be, telling the church how to live in light of the reality of who they are, those born again changed from the inside, and that has as its grand theme unity, contains within it the truth of reconciliation between God and between mankind. When all the world does is seek to divide over ethnicities, God comes in with great wisdom and says, through the cross, there's no such thing as a a race that you're seeking to reconcile. The world is filled with foolishness seeking to reconcile races when there is only one race. And through the cross, he himself is our peace. And he established peace. The world simply has no answers. The world will devour itself. But the church will carry on until the Lord calls the church home. And very quickly, that leads to our final heading that we'll touch on just briefly. Number three, the day that will be. You preach a whole sermon on the coming day that will be. 
Paul ends Ephesians, if you look at the very last verse of Ephesians, Paul ends the book of Ephesians by saying, Grace be with all those who love our, God, uh, love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. The word incorruptible there is the word for immortal, eternal. Our love for Christ will be eternal because we will be with him for eternity. Paul, in writing to the church at Thessalonica, said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 15 to 17, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, church, comfort one another with these words. There will be a day, very soon, when the Lord Jesus will snatch his church from out of this world. Where we will then enter into eternal glory and share in eternal fellowship in the presence of Christ with our fellow man. And in that eternal glory, there will be people from every tribe and every tongue. People from every ethnicity the world contains. And we will all be as one, as the people of God of all ages from all eternity. What joy. <laughs> what joy there is in knowing that through Jesus Christ, we who were without hope and without God in this world have been reconciled to God and our fellow man. What joy. Church, we have a message. While we're here in that very special, unique window of time, we have a message. And it is a message of truth. It is a message of truth to a dark and dying world who has as its ruler the devil. And what we see happening around us in this world is the fruit of his devilish ministry. We are to proclaim that message of reconciliation between God and mankind and mankind with each other. As long as the Lord gives us breath. We have the true message of reconciliation. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. We are not different people groups brought together. We are different people groups made one. There's no distinction any longer between Jew and Gentile, between ethnicities in Christ. There is just one new humanity, the church. And because of all the spiritual blessings that are ours, and because we've been rescued from such a terrible, hopeless, dire predicament, and because we've been made reconciled to God, united to Christ, and in fellowship with brothers and sisters, there is joy in the assembly. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for this time. Lord, there is joy. There is joy. As we consider and remember that we were formerly alienated, separated, strangers, without hope, without God in this world. But through Jesus Christ, we've, born, we've been brought near. And Lord, you gathered together and are gathering together people from all over the world. The church possesses the true message of reconciliation and peace. Help us to be filled with such joy and gratitude. On this day we pray. Amen.
Well, just before we head out to lunch, uh, let's uh, sing again to our great God.